A graduate of Stanford University, she went on to medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, where she was awarded her MD. And while on maternity leave from her work as a physician, she began to write fiction. In 1987, her first novel was published. Call After Midnight was followed by eight more romantic suspense novels. And her books have been translated into 40 languages, and more than 25 million copies have been sold around the world so far. Absolutely amazing. Her books have been uh, top uh, five bestsellers in the United States and abroad for many, many years. Now retired from medicine, she writes full-time and lives in Maine. Of course, we're talking about one of the most famous international thriller writers in existence today, Tess Gerritsen. How are you? Hi, you make me sound more famous than I've ever felt. <laughs> well, <laughs> I uh, I have a lot of respect for you. You command a lot of respect because uh, I, I think you're a brilliant writer, and uh, so we're happy to have you, Jess. Well, thank you very much. It's, I mean, it's funny because it really still gets down to me uh, a pen and a piece of paper all alone in my room. <laughs> <laughs> all alone, just like grad, uh, or just like medical school, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, listen, before, um, before we get into anything, I, I personally want to know a couple things because, honestly, I like to get into the heads of uh, you guys. Um, I've interviewed a number of authors like Baldacci and Peterson and Reichs, and um, many of them had much different careers starting out and then turned to writing. So why in the world would you give up a medical career for writing, and what changed your direction, Tess? I wanted to be a writer from a very early age. I wrote my first book when I was seven. Uh, but I was raised by what we would call today tiger parents, uh, Chinese-American parents, uh, who convinced me that there was really no career to be had in the arts. And, and you'll, you know, you'll find a lot of second-generation, uh, third-generation kids hearing that from their parents. They're, they're very uh, focused on security. I mean, that's sort of the immigrant personality. So um, even though I wanted to be a writer, I went to medical school to please my parents. Uh, but then that writing bug just never left. It, con it continues to infect me. Uh, and when I finally got the chance to be home with my kids for a while, I decided to go back to my first love. So it was really more of a, of a roundabout way of coming back to what I'd always wanted to do. Even though, even though um, that your uh, heritage was was very, very strong and very, uh, like you said, uh, family-oriented. I mean, that that's typical, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, immigrant, immigrant uh, I think I would say that that's part of being an immigrant, is that you're coming from an unstable situation. I mean, there's usually a reason to leave the old country, and you come here and you're trying to survive, and you want your kids to be comfortable. You want them to be able to pay their bills. Um, so I think that that's, that's one thing that, that um, holds all immigrants together, whether they're Irish or Chinese, that people work hard. And they don't necessarily see the arts as being a very reliable kind of a career for their kids. Yeah, crazy. Wow. <laughs> well, what? Uh, now you said you started at, what, seven? I wrote my first book when I was seven. <laughs> and, you know, I want you to ask Jeffrey Deaver the same question. When did he know he was a writer? I, I hear from a lot of writers who say they knew they were storytellers about that same age. It's really funny how almost mm -hmm. universal that is. Well, you're right. Uh, actually, um, uh, Peterson, Andrew Peterson, uh, same kind of thing. David Baldacci, of course, he was a lawyer and always wanted to write and had kids and, you know, that... Yeah, he moved. He moved. Was it tough for you, though? No, I mean, it, it, was, well, it was natural. 
natural. It was. The writing itself was not the tough part. I think the tough part was trying to <laughs> justify this switch in career to my family. Uh, my, I'd married a, a, a fellow physician, so... Oh, you did? Here we were. <laughs> yeah, here we are, two doctors, and he thought he'd married a doctor, and all of a sudden, this uh, this wife of his disappears into a room uh, for long periods of time. <laughs> um, and he thought, wait a minute, uh, you know, we had two wage earners here, and let's face it, writing, for the most part, does not earn much of a living for, for most people. Um, so there were, there were years when um, I was trying to explain to him, no, this is really important to me, even though I'm not making uh, a penny at this. Uh, so that was, that was really the hardest part, was hmm. just justifying to people who loved me. Hmm. Crazy. That, 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 that's very interesting. Hey, listen, I've got, I've got a young gal, uh, Karen Peterson. Um, she, uh, she wants to be a doctor, and she, is, she has read every, almost every single book of yours, and uh, she's got a couple questions for you, so I want to turn the mic over right now to Karen Peterson. Sure. Hi, Karen. Hello. How are you? Good. I'm glad to talk to you. Yeah, you've helped me a lot in my um, medical classes. So, um, and where are you? Yeah, where are you now in your education? Um, right now I'm a senior in high school, so that's cool. Yeah, okay. All right. So what was the book you, read when you were, wrote in when you were seven? About. Oh, it was <laughs> it was a book about my dead cat. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was a cat biography, I guess you would call it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh. Yeah. One thing I've learned, I think, what what makes um, a writer stronger if they've come from another profession or if they've done something else, whether it's medicine or law um, or physical anthropology is that just in the process of living and having seen so many things and heard so many stories, you bring a great deal to your stories. So um, I, I think it helps to have lived a life uh, before one becomes a writer. So how do you manage to control that like, medical knowledge so common people can understand and enjoy it? You know, that's a real hard, that's, a, that's really a challenge. Um, because doctors, engineers, whatever the profession, people talk in code. They talk, of, yeah. they, you know, they have their own jargon. And for me to translate that to um, language that everybody can understand uh, takes, uh, I guess it's a, there is, it's a, really a process of translation. What I find I have to do is take medical terminology and make it understandable, either by having a character who is not a doctor in there, who needs to be told what these things mean, or you stop, uh, every so often you stop the action and you explain. So um, it, it's always this tough choice of, how much do you have them talk the way doctors do, and how much do you just, you know, stop and explain? Hmm. Do you write everything yourself, Tess, or do you um, have a, you know, a team of uh, talent, or do you do you, do you, do you, do you focus groups, or, you know? I am all by myself here. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't let anybody see my book until I feel it's ready for publication. So that means that's that's maybe after five or six, seven rewrites of. The final, you know, the final draft, and then it goes to my husband, my agent, and my editor, pretty much all about the same time. Really? Hmm. Wow. So I don't have anybody else looking over my shoulder. I think it would drive me crazy if I did, uh, because you know the first couple of drafts are so flawed, they're so awful, and I would not dare show that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't have anybody checking your grammar or anything, huh? <laughs> no, well, as far as grammar goes, you know, there that is part of the editing process. There's yeah. somebody called a copy editor who sure. comes in and, yeah, and just make sure the facts check out or you haven't slandered somebody. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, 
there, there are several editorial processes. The first is um, the line editor, which is my, my primary editor, and she goes through and, and she makes sure it's, it's all logical, that the story fits, that she likes the way it's going. And then after she finishes with the story editing part, um, after that it goes to the, the uh, copy editor who does all the technical stuff. Yeah, crazy. Good process. So, uh, yeah, like a double-check uh, type thing. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. So out of all your books, which one is your favorite? You know, I get asked that question, and I, every time I, I'm always sort of in a quandary about how to answer that. I would say, personally, um, it's the book that probably sold the fewest copies. Uh, it would be Gravity. I love that book. Really? Um, and, I, I, you know, it's, I think it sold the fewest because it was not about a really popular topic. It was, it's about the space program. It's about the International Space Station, and it's a biological thriller that, yeah. that's set aboard the station. Um, and it was probably the most technically complicated book I've ever written, and yet um, I, I think that most people, uh, my women readers, sort of drop down in that story. I also call it my most romantic book ever because um, it really is about how far you, how much you would sacrifice to save the person you love. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's universal. I mean, yeah, it is. But to, but to put it in into mm-hmm. the you know perspective of somebody who loves NASA, loves the space program, and mm. and also rolling in all this this aeronautical um, engin- engineering and all the details about space medicine, um, mm-hmm. that was just one other one other level to this that made it much more than just a love story. Well, I'm I'm interested because what I'm tr- I'm going through my head now is what the heck went on in 99, you know, to not sell. <laughs> I mean, you you had a, you had a couple other hits before that. That's that's yeah. interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it it taught me. Well, there's a very important thing it taught me and I don't know if you'll be talking about this with your other um uh writers, but who is your audience? Who is the reading audience for fiction? And I and I think that there isn't a publisher who, who doesn't know the answer. It's mostly women. Right. Um, and gravity being about the space program is not a topic that it seems women were interested in. So my female readership dropped out. Uh, I got a few more males reading me because of that book. But when you lose your, your women audience, uh, you've, you've lost your audience, really. True, true. Um, well, before that, you had uh, Bloodstream came out. Now, that, I, I suspect, sold pretty well. <laughs> yes, that hit the bestseller list. I bet it did. I bet it did. So how do you build suspense in your novels without giving the end away? Because most of the time it's pretty crazy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, people ask me about how I plot stuff, and um, I'm afraid I'm, I'm a really, what's the word? I have no plan ahead of time. I'm completely chaotic when I'm plotting. I will start with uh, something that, a situation, that, that uh, a puzzle, something that, that really kind of you know, doesn't make any sense. Um, what happened, and then I, I just write the book, and I eventually come to the answer. Um, so because I don't plan things out ahead of time, I'm going into lots of blind ends. I'm surprising myself. I find that if I'm surprised, my readers are surprised as well. Um, well so it also means that uh, because I don't know what the answer is, sometimes it takes until the last couple of chapters before I figure out who the bad guy is. That, that uh, makes so sense. It, yeah, that makes yeah. sense, though, because if, if you don't put up that wall in front of you, you allow yourself to explore something that you may not have if you had lined it out. And, you know, I mean, yeah. you're right. I mean, you, you, yeah, you get to wander. You get to wander, I guess. I get to wander, and sometimes the answers are found out in the wilderness. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes the test tube tells the story, too. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's um you know that question that Karen just asked about what what is my favorite book, uh you know when I ask my audience that I ask my readers what is your favorite book, mm-hmm. they'll come up with different ones. I mean I think they're generally they'll say either the Surgeon or maybe Vanish mm-hmm. are their favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um it it's funny you just can't predict which book is going to be the big hit that everybody yeah. loves. Well, actually, I understand that that. that well, moving off to let, let's say, well, let's move off to to, to Rosalian Isles. I mean, um, I love that show. Okay, uh, mainly because of the writing. All right, of course, yeah. Angie Harmon's great. <laughs> you know, no doubt, uh, and Sasha Alexander's fantastic, also. So, what's it like working with them? Um, because you do work with them, don't you? No, I have oh, a confession to make. I, I'm wow. not the one writing those. You know who's writing those stories? is um, uh, It's a team, but it's all supervised by a wonderful um, producer called Janet Tamaro. Uh, she was the one who wrote the um, the pilot episode for Rizzoli and Isles. She was the one uh, who made it, put it all together and really turned it into a hit TV show. Um, and Janet takes all the credit for this. Now, um, that said, I mean, she does... She does take a lot of elements from the book, but as she likes to say, mm. um, she is the she she is the stepmother, and I am the birth mother. And now that my children are living in her house, they have to do what she says. <laughs> so they are they are different from the books. I mean, I think that the one thing that Janet um, saw immediately, and that TNT saw immediately too, yeah. was that this was uh, a show that was different because it was about female friendship. Yeah. It yeah. was about colleagues who work together um, and who don't have this catty thing that so many other TV shows have about women and, as rivals. They're girlfriends, so that was, right? Yeah, yeah they're girlfriends. Yeah. So that's the number one thing. Is, yeah. that, is that they're, uh, you know, they're women who work together. And the other thing um, was that she wanted them to be, you know, their personalities were very much in contrast. And one of the first things Janet said to me was uh, she said, your characters um, Jane and Maura, they're, they're really Kirk and Spock, aren't they? Yeah. And I thought, you know, She's absolutely right. I didn't. I didn't think of that when I was creating these characters, but somehow I've I've come up with these two archetypes, which is uh, you know James T. Kirk, Captain Kirk, the um, fiery, uh, very impulsive guy who who goes by his heart, and then there is Mr. Spock or Mora, who works with her brain, uh, and they are so different, and yet they work together very well. Well, they they I don't know. I mean, I I assumed. I, Obviously, I'm wrong, but I assume that a, most of the meat was taken out of your books. But it, yeah, I can understand that now. I can see that. It's 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 the way television works, I and mean, you know they they want to do their own show. Um, and in the meantime, I'm supposed to turn in a book every year, so I, I'm, I've got my own job to work on. Yeah. Really, a book a year? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I was able to be there when they filmed the pilot episode, and um, yeah. it is fascinating to see the difficulties of trying to translate a book series that's set in Boston and film it out in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> some of the things that were that were quite amusing when I was there was, um, you know, they were filming the episode that was supposed to be set in the fall in Boston. And they were filming it in the summertime in L.A. <laughs> so they had these challenges. For instance, the, the, they were filming uh, on location and they had to be very careful about the palm trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they couldn't be seen. And one thing that happened was that this house that they had rented for the, uh, the setting 
uh, had beautiful blooming rose bushes. So the first thing the set designer went is uh, did was to go through and cut all the flowers off those bushes. <laughs> uh, it, it broke my gar- gardener's heart to see that. Uh, but um, the the detail, the attention to detail that goes into a set like that, things that you know you the audience would never even notice. Um, it takes days and days to get that set up. Hmm. Hey Tess, um, you have a uh, you have some children, right? Yes, I have two grown sons. Right. And when they were young, okay, um, did they know what was going on? I mean, you know, as they got into their teens and late teens or whatever, did they have any idea what you were doing? (laughs) Well, you know, I I remember looking at my dad as a teenager. You know, he was an architect, and he worked all the time. He was never home, and he always came home grumpy. And You know, it's like, what the heck's he doing? You know, what what was he doing? Why Why is he this way? Why is he that way? You know, did you ever get any of that? Um, I think they knew I was a little strange. <laughs> they, um, kids are never impressed by what their parents do. They just never are. Um, I've heard Billy Joel say that his, his own daughter didn't think anything about him. You know, he was just a songwriter. Um, one thing my kids probably did realize was that our dinner conversations were quite odd. Um, mm. Because, you know, I'm, I'm married to a doctor, and here I have this kind of bizarre sense of, self-entertainment. I mean, I grew up with horror films. That's the, that was my childhood. My mother loved horror films. So um, that was my sensibility. And I, I remember very vividly a, a, a night sometime before Halloween uh, when we were having dinner and my son said, Mom, we're supposed to help decorate a room at the local haunted house. Do you have any ideas? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And of course, here, I, you know, here's Mom with her gory books, immediately said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to borrow a gurney from the hospital. <laughs> oh, we're wow. going to have one of your friends lie on the gurney like he's being operated on. We're going to the butcher shop to buy some pig entrails. And we're going to pile them on top of his belly as if a surgeon has just cut him open and everything's spilling out. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was getting all into this, right? I was coming up with the most exciting, scary room in the haunted house. And my son just looked at me and said, Mom, we can't do that. That's like over the top. <laughs> but it's, it's just the way my kids learn to think of me. And I do remember that their friends would read my books. And uh, my son's roommate in college said, uh, you do know your mom's sick, dude. <laughs> really? Well, you could have been a set designer, Tess. <laughs> I know. I, you know, I've always thought the, the most fun thing to do would be to work on a horror film. So you went to med- medical school in San Francisco, and so did uh, Dr. Isle. Like, do you leave a piece of yourself with each character, or like, how does that work? Is it by accident or on purpose? Well, you know, she is the closest person to myself that I've ever written about. Really? Um, hmm. In so many ways, she reflects a lot of who I am. Um, yeah. It's not this, just that she went to medical school in San Francisco. I think in the, in the books, she's always also said that she was an anthropology major. That's mm-hmm. me. You were. She plays the piano. That's me. She drinks the same wines I drink. She's, she drives my car. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's so much about her that I've just taken from my own life. And I think what I've taken mostly from um, from myself is her sense of faith in science. Yeah. Her belief or her hope that everything that is unexplainable can somehow be explained by science. And this is what leads her into trouble because human behavior cannot be explained. And she's constantly baffled by it. And, you know, in some ways I am too. I don't understand why people do the things they do. Yeah. Uh, so, so she's um, she's struggling to understand things about life, 
um, and it continues to cause complications for her. What do you see yourself doing down the road, Tess? Um, are you gonna are you gonna stay on this uh, on this uh, bandwagon? Um, are you gonna slow down? Do you do you see any light, uh, or do you see any end to this at all? I mean, well, I'm right at the moment. I'm not because I'm I'm working on the tenth <laughs> book, <laughs> so I, I've got to finish this by June. I have yes. <laughs> uh, a couple of ideas already in the back of my mind about the next two books I'm going to write. So. I guess it's hard to say you're going to stop when there's still ideas that need to be put down on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about writers that I've noticed uh, that is we're very curious people. We, we're interested in a lot of different subjects. And out of those interests often comes the next idea for a book or out of those experiences um, comes an idea for a book. And, and then they sit around in your head and they kind of bounce around for a while, sometimes for years. Uh, but eventually, the story becomes clear. Hmm. So as long as the stories are still coming, I'm going to keep writing. Far out. So um, what do you do to relax? I mean, what do you like to do when you're not I writing? Love tra- <laughs> I, love to, I love to cook. I love to travel. I um, Garden? A garden, <laughs> read, play the fiddle. You know, there's, there, I've never been bored in my life. Fiddle? And piano, huh? And piano? Yeah, and the piano. No way. Uh, you know, what did, I, what did I say about Chinese parents? Well, yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, every Chinese girl I knew growing up played the piano and very often the violin as well. Yeah. Well, having your like immig- having your like parents affected your new book, The Silent Girl, because you had like that Chinese myth to it in it. That's right. Um, a lot of that, you know, The Silent Girl, which was the most recent book, yeah. um, uh, was taken from a lot of childhood experiences. Uh, the, the The basic plot is that there's a, a woman who's murdered in Chinatown in Boston, and her head is almost sliced off. And the only clues are monkey hairs on her, on her clothes and a piece of metal that's chipped off in her wound that turns out to be from a 15th century sword. Mm-hmm. So uh, the question is, has she been murdered by an ancient legend called the Monkey King, which is what I grew up with, the story of the Monkey King that my mother used to tell me. Yes. So I wanted to bring in uh, a lot of Chinese mythology. I wanted to bring in heritage, that you know, my heritage, I include several Asian American characters in the story. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I've wanted to write years, for years and years, but just it took time to come up with the right story. So why would you do Boston? Like, don't you live in Maine? Like, what's so special about Boston? Yeah, you know, that's right. Well, Boston is the largest big city to me. Ah. Um, it started off because I was writing The Surgeon, um, and, I, and I wanted to have a, a book with a serial killer. Well, in the state of Maine, we don't have that many murders. <laughs> We're probably one of the safest states in the country, and I, so I, I chose the largest big city to me, which is Boston, because that was easiest to, uh, to do my research in. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Going back for a minute, uh, the Monkey King. Um, now, that, that to me, I, I saw a movie. What the heck was the name of the movie? It wasn't a Raiders flick or some sort of... Yeah, the monkey came in. I mean, this guy, this, he, yeah, yeah, he was a he was a pretty cool, pretty cool warrior, I guess. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, there are lots of movies about the monkey king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty dead. So help me. Well, toss. the thing about the interesting thing about the monkey king in, in mythology is that he's both he's both a hero, but he's also Same very naughty. Yeah. <laughs> so. He will, as I like to say, uh, describe, you know, what is it about the Monkey King that's, that's interesting. Is He will save your life, but in the process, he may t- tear down your house. Aww. So he's unpredictable. 
Um, he does the right thing, but he does it in, in strange and naughty ways um, because he is a monkey. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a heroic monkey, but as we all know, monkeys are unpredictable. Hey, have you ever thought about writing to, like, the young adult uh, market? Oh, man, I've wanted to do that for years. Really? <laughs> Please, do please do. <laughs> I, I have wanted. I, it, I, it's just a matter of finding the time. I have the mm. story. I just mm. need the time to do it. Mm. I know exactly what the story is going to be about. Um, so it's yeah. I, I love. I think that the, what I love about the YA market is that you're telling stories that very often are really iconic. I mean, there there a lot of them have to do with heroes' journeys, and a lot of them. Um, you can bring in mythology. You can bring in things that aren't necessarily, you know, um, put on the ground uh, realistic. You can bring in a lot more fantasy to them. So I, I do love that YA genre. Yeah, I, I actually see some of your work as graphic novels down the road, too. I mean, that may be very complex to put together, but I, but I see it because... You know, I mean, the kids these days, they're into that dark stuff. And, um, yep. <laughs> I, I personally love graphic novels. I mean, they're, they're, they are so much fun. They bring me back to when I, you know, started reading with comic books back in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't a lot of us? I mean, I, I, I just remember where we started reading. I started reading um, not only comic books, but also as Isaac Asimov and, and, you know, all fantasy. That was where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Wow, <laughs> that's insane! I can't believe this. Um, yeah, well, okay, you're talking to an old Star Trek person here. So okay, that. all right, yeah. then I feel better. <laughs> I mean, uh, how many? I don't, I don't know how many writers that I know, respectable writers, um, have the nerve to ad- mm. admit that they went to Star Trek conventions. Well, tell me I mean, about I it. did. I went to two. Oh wow! <laughs> um, really? I even wore the silly ears. No so, way! Wow. <laughs> I love it. This is great. <laughs> This is crazy. Um, <laughs> I can't believe this. Well, you know, you know what? I, I mean, I remember Star Trek, and I remember all the other uh, 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 series during the fifties and sixties. A lot of that stuff is coming to fruition now. I mean, I remember uh, um, uh, um, Bones, and uh, he'd have the scanner. You know, we've got those portable handheld scanners now. We've got. Oh, yeah. We've got. Um, you know, CAT scans where we can 3D imaging and or image the body. We can look inside arteries. I mean, that to me just blows my head off my shoulders. I, I well, just cannot. You, I mean, think about just the communicators. We now all have cell phones. Well, that's yeah, true. it's true. Yeah. And now we have Siri. This is the thing. We have Siri, and you can talk to your computer. You can ask Siri a question, and she will respond and, and give you an answer. And um, sometimes when I hear my husband talking into his iPhone, he's talking to Siri. I don't know if you know about Siri. Mm-hmm. Um, you can like talk some texts. Like, right. Mm-hmm. So he's talking to Siri. He says, what's the closest restaurant? She'll answer, let me search. The closest restaurant is, I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is Star Trek. <laughs> you know, that that scares me a little bit. Um, I, <laughs> I'm having a hard, well, I'm not having a hard time with technology. It's just that I was raised by, um, by an architect, okay, and so like we had to we had to learn math, you know, with a pencil and paper, ouch, um, right, <laughs> and, and a slide rule, and you know, it, it blows me away. These I don't know what the heck is going on out there in the world, but I I mean, these kids, can't, a lot of these kids can't even add in their head for crying out loud. So, <laughs> there's, so there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing wrong with pencil and paper, and you know. 
get, now that we're moving on to this topic, I don't think kids should be playing with computers until they're 14. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's dangerous. What I see, which very, which disturbs me, and you may see the same thing as a parent and a writer, but but the, the, the fact that we are in an age now where we do not have to verbalize, we do not have to look in the eyes of the person we're talking to, mm-hmm. that's a little scary to me. Because I, I've got a pretty good sense of people, and I can look in the eyes of people, and I can tell if they're good guys or bad guys. I mean, I just have that gut ability. And, you know, you don't know who the heck you're talking to these days or who you're doing business with. And Does that scare you? Or does it, or or forget about it, Greg, you're nuts. I love it. Well, you know, I run into that as, as an author who gets online reviews. Yes. Um, or gets comments on my blog or gets comments here or there. There are people who once uh, you get them online and they have this anonymous this anonymous uh, veil over them, you don't know what they're going to be like. You have, you know, people just turn into different personalities when they're yeah. online and anonymous. Um, so having access and having anonymity leads to, I think, a lot of sociopathy that shows up just on, on you know, on the computer. Um, I don't know who these people are in real life. I assume that if you were to meet them, they would be perfectly fine mm-hmm. because then they're meeting you face to face, and they have to, they they have to start being social beings. Yeah. Um, but you you find mob behavior, you find things that really are frightening online. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's there's a book. <laughs> and yeah, right there. <laughs> there's a book right there. Well, listen, um, you know, on that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to um, one of the. One of the best freaking international thriller authors there is. I mean, Tess, this has been fantastic. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, um, thank you. Uh, I want to thank uh, I want to thank you, and I also want to thank KSU Station Manager Jerry Miller and Staff Manager Jamin Anderson for helping make this program possible, as well as NPR. On behalf of the Marshall Public Library, this is Greg Grasso with co-host Karen Peterson thanking acclaimed international thriller author Tess Gerritsen for spending time with us today. You can find Tess's books anywhere in the world on Kindle audios, web, bookstores throughout the country. And until then, keep reading, everybody. Thank you, Tess. The Marshall Public Library radio show continues in the next half hour with host Greg Grasso and children's author Jessica Day George.